Blessed be you, harsh matter, barren soil, stubborn rock, you who yield only to violence. You who force us to work if we would eat. Blessed be you, perilous matter, violent sea, untamable passion. You who, unless we fetter you, will devour us. Blessed be you, mighty matter, irresistible march of evolution, reality ever born anew. You who, by constantly shattering our mental categories, force us to go ever further and further in our pursuit of the truth. Blessed be you, universal matter, unmeasurable time, boundless ether, triple abyss of stars, atoms, and generations. You who, by overflowing and dissolving our narrow standards of measurement, reveal to us the dimensions of God. Let's sing. Well, Michael is doing experiments. So I told him if, if they make a big bang, it will fit right in with what we're talking about in here. But we'll have to go check it out. So I am going to be reaching up into the stars and back in time in my remarks this morning. But I want to start out talking about the seashore Like many humans, I love going to the shore in all its forms, up to, did I do that? (laughs) Up to the rocky bluffs on the Rhode Island coast, or down to the wide sand expanses of South Carolina, and onto the boardwalks and the beach towns of the Jersey Shore. I like how washed and clean the air feels in the morning, and I like that baking heat in the noonday sun. I like the color play on the horizon at dusk, and at the nighttime when you can hear the waves but you can't see them, and the expanse of the sky is just huge. I like the predictability of sand everywhere and in everything, and What the salty air does makes my skin sticky and my hair kind of wild. I like the way that the rolling waves fill my mind and make it easy not to worry about anything. I like the far away horizon where the sea and the sky meet and the way the tide line is always changing. Most of all, I like the way I lose myself a bit and can feel a part of it all when I'm at the shore, embedded in nature's rhythms and movement and timing. I like to think of it as a kind of cosmic remembering, calling me back to my own ancient watery roots. It's like the reverse of the New Yorker cartoon where the fish on finned feet are climbing out of the water up onto land and one says to the other, what's next? This is like my climbing back and saying, where did I come from? I crave those moments, fleeting as they often are. 
when I can grasp that sense of all time and space. It is a spiritual remembering for me that's deeply restorative, and it's full of opportunity for theological reflection. And so for all of those reasons, I became provoked enough to conjure up this sermon for you after a disturbing experience I had at the Jersey Shore this past summer. I was at Ocean Grove serving as the chaplain for ALTI UU Leadership Team Institute. The lay leaders were there to gain skills and to deepen their religious connections. And this year, some of them were also taking a course in what's called practical theology. Amidst my duties, I was taking my walks to the beach and enjoying my own theology and reflection. And I was in this general frame of mind that I've kind of been describing for you, happy to be there and a part of it all, when I was startled to hear an ALTI participant speaking about her struggle to understand theology. Her struggle had been going on for a couple of days. Unable to figure out just what theology was, she announced on this second or third day with some relief that she had been instructed just to think of theology as psychology. Well, you might imagine, based on what I've said so far, that I wished I had the opportunity to instruct her to look elsewhere for theology. I also heard her instruction with no small amount of irony, since one of my personal assignments by the committee overseeing my preparation for ministry was that I come to fully understand the difference between being a psychologist, which I've been for over 25 years, and being a minister, which is my newer role. And so to me, this difference between being a psychologist and a minister also seemed to be related to a difference between psychology and theology. I do have a deep affection for my work as a psychologist. I do still practice psychotherapy, and I believe that the healing and the recovery that I facilitate in people's lives and in their relationships is important work. Psychology as a science of mind and behavior has made significant contributions to medicine, to education, to law, to the delivery of human services. And it has also made significant contributions to pastoral care and counseling, to our understandings of how congregations function as a system, and to our ability to understand some of our more persistent social concerns, like racism, homophobia, aggression, and addictions. In fact, religion has been very accepting of what psychology has to offer, even though psychology has more often than not turned a cold shoulder towards religion. I still wince a bit remembering a colleague's disbelief on learning about my call to ministry and saying that he was unwilling to believe that I was willing to go for what he called a demotion from my PhD to my Master's of Divinity. Psychology dating from the time of William James has tried to pin down the nature of the human's religious experience and to discern the motivation towards the religious impulse. 
Since the advent of neuropsychology and neuropsychiatry, there's been an effort to isolate that part of the brain that's actually responsible for religious inspiration, sometimes referring to it as the God spot in the brain. And we do now know that extensive meditation practice, such as that learned by monks, Buddhist monks, after years of meditation, does make a clearly discernible change in both the structure and the function of the brain. And some authors authors now characterize these studies as neurotheology. I find these efforts to study the human religious experience very interesting, and although I have to say it doesn't surprise me to learn that humans are receptive to religious experience. I had an inkling of that, perhaps you did too. Not just psychologically, but biologically. We are made for what it is we yearn for. Nor does learning that we have the capacity to experience the religious, however it is defined in our very nature, turn it for me into something small, merely psychological or less meaningful to me. But to call such studies theological, I believe, is misleading to the intent of theology. Theology is not confined to human experience. It addresses the nature of the transcendent reality that actually can reach well beyond our human understanding. The transcendent reality that causes us to search for greater meaning and truth that is found more than is found on the surface of our lives. Marilyn Robinson, who is known for her writings on religious themes, says this of theology. Theology is the level at which the highest inquiry into meaning and ethics and beauty coincides with the largest scaled imagination of the nature of reality. Robinson likes to focus theology in the way that others focus on string theory or chaos theory. She likes scientific cosmologies as well, cosmologies that explore the grand design behind the unity of reality. Like Robinson, I need my theology to speak to the cosmic connections of my human moment in the whole grand story of the universe. But I also want my theology to address the immediacy of my daily human effort to live in right relationship with the interdependent web of life of which I am a part. I need the transcendent and the imminent pulled together. I need the macro and the micro of my experience unified. Many Unitarian Universalists might rather speak of our fourth principle, the free and responsible search for meaning and truth, rather than speak of theology. And I am comfortable with that as well. Some ask, doesn't speaking of theology require us to speak of God? You can speak of God, or Yahweh, or Allah, or Vishnu, or of love, transcendent love, if that helps you to point to that which is greater than ourselves, which we, through human experience, can only partially name. Theology invites us to consider our human experience in relationship to a unified, 
transcendent reality of a scale unimaginable to human understanding. Does that sound too abstract or too unapproachable? Perhaps sometimes it feels simpler to think about human origins in terms of a garden where a man and a woman and a snake came into being and into creation. But I doubt that any of us here believe literally in a biblical beginning to human identity, even though the simple story has a beauty to it and a symbolism to it. I doubt that any of us believe that we are descendants from Adam and Eve thrown out of the garden by a disappointed and a punitive God. But if not the garden, what identity do you claim as the origins for your humanity? How do you understand your own living, breathing existence? We can say we don't believe one way of looking at the origins, but what way will we choose to look at the origins of our life? The conclusion across the scientific disciplines today that look to the cosmos tell us that we humans are actually cosmological beings. We are the universe in human form. The elements inside us link us to the stars. After the universe expressed itself in the form of the earth, the earth expressed itself partially in the form of human. We are of the earth, not separate from it. Every cell on earth, from patches of floating blue-green algae to the deep recesses of the human brain, are made of the same 50 organic molecules. We all use the same four kinds of nucleotides. We all need the same amino acids. We all carry our blueprint inside our DNA and our RNA. We life forms on the planet Earth are the living history of the universe. We are stardust formed to Earth, born of human. Mathematical cosmologist Brian Swim said, the Earth was once molten lava, now it sings opera. We are the only consciousness in the universe that we know to date. We are the universe aware of itself, reflecting on itself, discerning its history, and probing its own unified future. In current scientific understanding, the macro and the micro, the transcendent and the imminent, are intimately interwoven into a grand, unified, and ever-evolving universe. Contemplating this reality, the theologian Thomas Berry said, to tell the story of anything, you have to tell the story of everything. To tell the story of anything, you have to tell the story of everything. How does our free and responsible search for meaning and truth change in light of this perspective on our existence? If I am of the earth and kin to all, how does that awareness change my sense of connection, my compassion for myself and for the other? 
If I am of the earth, not separate from it, does that alter my perspective on the use and destruction of the resources that sustain my life on the planet and sustain the life of the planet? If my consciousness and your consciousness and every consciousness is the forming edge of the universe's awareness of itself, shouldn't we be more concerned to protect the well-being of that consciousness in every form in which it exists? Our human feelings and thoughts, our capacity for deep soulful reflection are not exceptions to the universe. They have actually emerged out of the very heart of the universe. It's not easy for our consciousness to grasp these deep unifying connections with the world around us, to experience our perceptions and our actions in deep abiding connection with the world around us. We have been trained otherwise. We live in a culture that has cultivated our sense of separateness and has trained our perceptions on our individuality. It has cultivated our actions towards competition, the winning and the losing strivings that lead us towards increasing disconnection. And yet, we are born out of this deep connection not only to each other, body emerging out of body, but also evolved out of the very matter of the earth that sustains us. Albert Einstein, who I actually recently learned joined the Unitarian Universalist Church of the Larger Fellowship in his later years, Einstein contemplated the human condition uh, and wrote about it in letters, um, as well as his working on theories of the nature of reality. He spoke of our human problem in perceiving us ourselves as separate in this way. He said, a human being is a part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited by time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings, as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for only a few people near us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature and its beauty. But it will take practice. It will take practice for us to learn to widen our embrace in this way and to feel, not to think or to know, but to feel our kinship with all humankind, to feel the earth as fully of us and fully home, to embrace the common elements of kinship that we share in nature with love, and to dream the future of the universe as we co-evolve with it. If you'll go with me, I'd like to take us on a short guided meditation to cultivate a bit of this kinship feeling with the earth. I've adapted it from the prose writing of Erwin Schrodinger, who was one of the founders of quantum mechanics, but also had a bit of the poet in him. So I invite you to relax in your seat, get into a comfortable position. 
You may close your eyes if you wish or simply soften your gaze. Be comfortable. Breathe. Soften. Now suppose you were sitting on a bench at the top of a trail up one of our nearby Catskill Mountains. You're surrounded by the autumn-hued forest, the occasional evergreen and mountain laurel. Rocky outcroppings and large accidental boulders are strewn about, dropped off long ago as the glacier passed through. Looking back behind you, you see the steep trail that you've climbed up from the valley stream below. Out before you, beyond the valley floor ahead, there go the wooded slopes of the gentle old Catskills rolling away in waves towards the horizon. The sun is moving lower on the horizon and the changing light of dusk is deepening the shadows and the depths of the forest below. One last hawk is soaring, riding the air currents rising up from below. Sitting here, you contemplate this ancient landscape. You realize that for thousands of years, these rocks and woods and sky have existed. And they have all they need to continue existing for ages to come, after your footprints have faded. There have been generations of men and women who have struggled to live, to give birth, to provide, to love, and to care and then in their own time to return to space and time. Maybe a hundred years ago, another person sat on this very spot you are occupying to contemplate the beauty of the land as you are doing, to breathe the joy of the climb as you breathed, to feel the stillness of the dusk you are feeling Ask yourself, who was this other person? How is the consciousness in you, the self-same awareness that exists in other beings and has existed throughout all time? Relax the sense of separateness. Feel the firmness of existence in the earth, in consciousness, born anew each day, not someday, but now, today, every day. Relax into the sense of the present that is also of the past and the future. Relax into being. Relax into belonging. Know that you are home. Rest there a moment until I ring the bell.
can open your eyes, return to this room, to this time, to this consciousness that we're sharing in this moment. That experience may or may not have been comfortable for you to try to imagine yourself part and parcel of the universe, part and parcel of a past, present, future consciousness, part of a blurring of present and past reality. It's a question for us, how will we learn to move into this deeper connectivity and presence amidst the unsettling questions that we experience? I've actually sometimes been unsettled by that first hymn we sang today, Brian Tate's Where Do We Come From? His words, where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? Life is a riddle and a mystery. When I'm in a state of existential angst, which can happen, that hymn has way too many big questions and no answers. It's not a comforting sentiment for me. And you may feel that way about my message today. We need new stories. We need a new, new renditions of the story of the universe and new songs and poets and creation of art that helps us deeply embed ourselves in this story of the universe that is our story to help us embrace this reality that we truly are the forming edge of the consciousness of the universe, a unified reality that is also transcendent beyond our human understanding. Exploring our place as children of the universe will not always be comfortable for us. Our comfort comes in the naming of our deep belonging and the deep relationships that we feel to each other and to the earth. Our comfort is in giving up a separateness that discounts our meaningfulness and our worth to each other. Our comfort is in learning to cultivate our cooperation and our compassion instead of our competitive nature. Our comfort is in knowing that we matter, that our existence, our very existence, affirms life, and our consciousness gives that life meaning. Our comfort is in our freedom to search for meaning and truth from the vantage point that is human and yet deeply and firmly grounded in the unity of our existence. Blessed be.